The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Is abortion immoral? An interview with Ben Baer. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Philosophy for Living on Earth. This is a weekly webinar series where we discuss different important issues um, for society and in philosophy. My name is David Birnbaum and I'm joined by Ben Baer. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Today's topic is, is abortion immoral? I just wanna remind everyone at the outset that we will be doing audience Q&A. So on Facebook, YouTube, and Periscope, you can comment with your questions. And if you're watching on Zoom, there is a Q&A tab that we ask you use for questions. So Ben, I'd like to jump right in and ask the, that question, is abortion immoral? I wanna start by giving a somewhat provocative, deliberately provocative answer to that question, David. Abortion should be safe, legal, and it is rarely immoral. In fact, okay. I'll go further. I'll, I'll say that for women who don't want to have a child, don't want to have a child, it is usually immoral for them not to get an abortion. And that's a provocative okay, so, statement as you could give, I think. Yeah, that's quite provocative. So I will ask why that is, why it's why it would be immoral to not get an abortion. When you don't want a child, right? When you don't want a child, because, yeah. Well, so there's a couple of things to start off with. The first thing that occurs to people when they think about abortion, if they're in any way skeptical about its morality, is the question, well, isn't abortion murder? And this is something we'll spend some time talking about. But I just want to start by saying abortion's not murder. It's not anything even close to murder because the embryo or the fetus is not an individual human being with rights. So that's just to get that out of the way and we can talk about that more. But the second point that I would make is that if we're taking as our standard of value and our, our moral compass, what's good for human life, then the reason that abortion is moral is because it protects a woman's life and happiness. And in the United States of America, we respect the right to the pursuit of happiness. And that's because we think there's something morally good about the pursuit of happiness. And abortion is an important safeguard for women who want that, who want to exercise that right and who ought to exercise that right. And so what comes to mind is obviously then the contrast between the woman's life and her right to life and happiness and the alleged or supposed right of the fetus to the unborn child of those same things. And it seems, well, I mean, this that does get to the point of if this is a person, it's murder and don't they have rights as well. So I suppose we have to get into the question of what rights, if any, does the fetus have? Because I, yeah, I think most people agree women should be able to pursue happy, happiness, but not at the cost of murder, as many people would claim abortion to be. Yeah. And I'll, I'll start by just reiterating my point that abortion is nothing like murder. It's not even in the same realm 
uh, of discussion. And as I said before, the reason for that is that a fetus or an embryo is not an individual human being with rights. If you think there's anything wrong with murder, where you're talking about real cases of murder, the kinds of reasons that you can have for thinking there's something wrong with murder don't and couldn't even begin to apply to the fetus or the embryo. Why is murder actually wrong? Murder is wrong because it takes away the life of a living, breathing, thinking, feeling, living human being. Someone who's out in the world pursuing projects, pursuing adventures, pursuing their happiness. And it takes that away from them. There is no being in the womb who's even close to that territory. To get into this a little bit on a more philosophical level, it's important to think about what rights actually are to understand whether or not fetuses even come close to having them. And the, what rights are, are concepts that we use to draw boundaries around our life in order to give us the freedom to pursue these projects, in order to give us the freedom to pursue happiness in the context of a society where we need to negotiate arrangements and relationships with other people, where we need to be able to coexist with them in order to draw a sphere around our lives to make it so that there are no conflicts between us and other people. And so that means that the paradigm case, the most obvious case where someone has rights is the case of a, a fully grown, mature, adult human being who's fully possessed of their faculties and engaging in productive pursuits, uh, which I should add is most obviously the profile of the type of person who needs an abortion when they need one. Uh, but besides that point, the, the paradigm cases of rights bearers, people who have rights are, are mature adults now, that doesn't mean that only adults have rights. Uh, obviously, uh, many more human beings do as well. Uh, but th th that's why we need rights. We need rights, first of all, because they're a protection of living productive human activity. And anyone else who gets rights, even if they're not productive people, they get them to the extent that that's a real possibility for them that we want to be able to protect. So. Uh, you know, unproductive people have rights because we hope that they're going to become productive. Young children have rights because they're going to grow up to be the sort of person who uh, hopefully wants to live an active, flourishing life. And of course, somebody could ask, well, isn't the, isn't the embryo or the fetus going to grow up? Well, if yeah. there's no abortion, they will. But that's then the very question. And the embryo or the fetus is in a very different circumstance with respect to other people than let's say the infant is. Once the infant is born, it is a separate individual that anyone can take care of, anyone can raise, and is no longer in any kind of threatening physical position to the mother. But that's very different from the situation of the fetus or the embryo who's a part of a woman's body, who is intimately connected to the woman's body, affects the health of the woman's body. And in order, for the, in, in order for the fetus to be born, the woman has to undergo an excruciating physical procedure, which is labor, 
or at the very least a risky uh, surgery, which is a C-section. And that is an inescapable situation for the woman. She doesn't have any choice about that situation as long as she's pregnant. The only way out is an abortion. That is the kind of situation where you can't meaningfully speak of rights. It's not a situation between two individuals who are free to go their separate ways. It's not a situation where they can negotiate about the terms of the occupancy uh, or how long they're going to stay or what the terms for the exit are going to be. Uh, it's a situation where you have a rational, living, breathing, independent entity, the woman who's trying to pursue a path in life, and an entity, a sub-entity who's a part of her body, who's not doing any of those things, can't negotiate anything, has no real thoughts, has no real self, and is not in a position uh, to claim rights. And so then is the idea that, because I think people would push back that it would have rights or it should have rights. So is it inherently a religious, like a religious overtone that thinks a fetus has any rights? Because to me, it, and to me, it still seems sort of arbitrary that, you know, birth is the, the de facto decider that, you know, one day before it's okay, one day after it's not to end this entity or non-entity's life. So how do we think about that? Or is it just has to contrast with the religious notion? Yeah, I think there's two separate questions there. One about the religious conception and another about why is birth the bright line. Okay. So I think you're right. I think that the, the only real reason why anyone could think that a fertilized embryo has rights a small cellular impossible even to see entity has rights is if they have a religious worldview that says it's been infused magically with a soul uh, and people who who say that rights begin at conception won't always admit that this is the way they're thinking and maybe they don't explicitly believe it themselves but they've they've been influenced by others who believe it uh, because you can almost come up with no other reason to think that it has rights aside from something like that. And the point I would make is that that is not the basis, that is not a proper basis for morality and it's not a proper basis for public policy. The fact that you have a, a, a belief which is not based on any evidence that there is a magical soul at conception gives a woman no reason to consider it immoral to end the life of that, uh, that clump of cells, and certainly is not the basis for public policy in a secular republic where we have a divide between church and state, and we properly have that divide. So then as to the question of the, the line, drawing the line at birth, uh, you know, someone can ask the question, well, is, is, the, is the fetus all that different when it's in the womb a few minutes before birth versus outside of the womb a few minutes after birth. And it might be true that the, that the, the, the organs and the bodily structure are not that different. But here, the circumstance makes all the difference in the world for the reasons that I mentioned before. When it's in the woman's body, it is an unavoidable burden for her to carry it. And it is usually... Uh, it's drawing on her physiological resources and it can pose a physical threat to her. 
it's in that kind of situation where the concept of rights simply doesn't apply for the reasons that I mentioned before. Now, you know, at what exact point do we want to say it begins to have rights? There isn't an exact point, and no one's ever going to be able to give an argument for why there is an exact point, because rights are not magical attributes that suddenly come into being at a certain point. Rights are a moral concept that human beings use to, as I mentioned before, draw boundaries around their lives for the sake of protecting their lives. And we are the ones who have to do the drawing of these boundaries, including the, the line at which they begin to apply. And that doesn't mean that we draw these lines arbitrarily or subjectively. There are real facts in the world that aid us in drawing these lines. And there is a real an important difference between, for the reasons I mentioned before, uh, an entity inside a woman and outside a woman. And I think that difference is in part the reason why we celebrate birthdays uh, and not conception days. That's when we think of ourselves as coming into the world. That, that does make a lot of sense and I've never thought of it in that exact light. Um, so talking about rights or extending that a bit, is the concept of or the topic of legality generally so we've established that in like objectivism's view it is moral uh to make the decision to get an abortion does that automatically mean that it should be legal across the board or what if anything how should people think about the legal framework around abortion right so here it's useful to think about the concept of rights again because the concept of individual rights is a concept that we use to bridge the realm of morality with the realm of legality. A right is the sphere of protection around the life that you ought to be able to live. It's around, it's a, it's in a, think of it this way, it's a way of protecting your ability to live a proper, that is virtuous, that is a moral life. And so the first thing that the law should protect is the things that are moral for you to do. Now, that doesn't mean that the law should only protect moral activities. Uh, I think there's a lot of immoral choices it should protect too. But the reason why, that it, why you should ever even allow protection of immoral activities is because people need to make choices. Part of what it means to live a rational life, which we, which we need if we want to thrive in this world, is, is, to, is to make choices using our own minds. And that leaves open the possibility you're going to make the wrong choice. But the only reason we care about choices at all, including the choice to make the wrong, the, making the wrong choice, is that we want to protect your ability to make the right choice. Uh, and, and it is the right choice, A, because there's, there's no one whose rights you're infringing upon, but even more importantly, B, because it is a necessary way of protecting the life of a woman who doesn't want to have children. Someone who doesn't want to have children has not factored it into her life plans and has some higher priorities that she sees as contributing to her happiness and wouldn't be a very good parent anyway if she doesn't actually want to be a mother. Uh, there's two different directions I want to go, but both are around kind of the state of the conversation generally, because I mean, when we posted about this on Facebook, there's a lot of very, um, you know, anti-abortion sentiment. A lot of people still think 
we're wrong or you're, you're wrong in this view. And so one, I'm interested in taking the avenue of why is it such a consistent issue and is it important to really lean into it and figure it out? But then also the other aspect is what do these people expect if their, if, you know, their thought process was valid, that we force women to bear children they don't want. And I don't know which avenue is best to follow, but it's kind of, I'm still having a hard time understanding the other side of it fully. Well, I mean, I part partially, I have a hard time understanding it myself, uh, which is often the case when you, you really disagree with someone. Um, but so why is there still, why is there such widespread opposition to abortion? I mean, one of the reasons I think is, uh, is religion. Uh, we live in a religious society. And as we discussed previously, it's a religious worldview that more than anything else leads people to think that rights are magical attributes that are endowed by a God at a time when they think their religious text or their religious authorities have told them that it's actually uh, endowed. Um, I also think that there's a kind of uh, tribalistic aspect to the opposition to abortion. Abortion is a concrete controversy where it's easy to know what the controversy is about. It's easy to have a visceral reaction to uh, to the controversy. And if you don't like the other people who take the other position, it's often, it's a, it's a way of hating on the other side. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of that involved in this controversy. Um, there are people who you see, who, who claim to, who, people who are activists on this cause, who you know, if you wanted to attribute their uh, position to something sincere, you would think, well, these people must really love children and care about children. And they're willing to even force people to do things to protect children. And yet these same people uh, aren't interested in, aren't often interested in extending uh, uh, welfare provisions or cradle to grave uh, protections to make sure that uh, the children, once they're born, are raised uh, you know, in the best way. And so that makes me question the sincerity. And it makes me think this isn't really about uh, loving babies. It's, it's something else. It's something more about hating the other side. And we could go into deeper, uh, I think there are deeper motives than that, but I won't go into them just now unless we need to. Okay, I, I'm wondering then, are there any that you know of, because I don't know of any secular groups or like secular movements that are anti-abortion? Or is it really just the religious sex? I'm just seeing a note that says people on Facebook are having trouble hearing us. Um, let, let us know if anyone else is having that problem. Uh, but you asked about whether there are uh, secular uh, op opponents of abortion. And I think mm -hmm. not often. I mean, I can, I can dredge up a few philosophers here and there who give at least nominally secular arguments based on uh, the fact that uh, they think there's value that attaches to uh, to an, a fetus's future 
even if the future hasn't been realized yet. Um, I don't think they're very good arguments. And often the, arg the secular arguments that they give are not even really expressive of the thinker's own views. I think you can usually find out that they have a religious attitude. Now, I, I'm not going to say that every abortion opponent is religious, but I think most of them are. And the ones who aren't are often influenced by the ones who are. And just if you look historically, opposition to abortion in the United States has come, first of all, mostly from the Catholic Church. Uh, and then in the last 20 or uh, 30 years, evangelical uh, Protestants have gotten on the bandwagon. And if you read accounts of the kinds of people who show up for the March on Life, it's overwhelmingly uh, Catholic schools truck in their kids. So uh, that I think is, that's the answer to your question, I think, about who opposes it. So what do you think of the concept pro-life as meaning anti-abortion? Because that would be at odds with you know, a fully pro-life view the way you've seemed to express it today. I think it's an incredible distortion to characterize the anti-abortion position as pro-life. And that's because if you really value human life, if you really value what is distinctive about human life, what you care about is not whether or not there's some cellular metabolism that happens to have a particular genetic code. And there's lots of ways to make this clear. Like, do you, do you care about the life of, you know, if you scratch some skin cells off, you've just killed some genetically human material. No, what you care about is, what you care about is, is like I said before, the living, breathing adult human being. And not only that, but you care about everything that is necessary and leads up to that when it is desired. Uh, human life is a long-range, all-encompassing activity. It is the life of the mind. Rights are there to protect that. And restrictions on abortion infringe on that. They are anti-life. They want women to not be able to live the life of their choosing. And they want women, in effect, to be made slaves for a period of nine months, culminating in an, what's basically forced labor. I mean, I think this is what the 13th Amendment of the Constitution was about preventing. So it's some pretty strong language that you just use saying like, you know, women would essentially be made slaves and, and the language that you've used generally is quite strong. I'm wondering why I don't hear that in the mainstream often. In the, in the pro-abortion movements, it's often seen more apologetic and as it's like, oh, this is a necessary evil. They don't say it's morally good. It's like, no, we should just let women do it. Why is it kind of that more apologetic tone then if it is right? Well, you called it, why is the pro-abortion movement this way? And they, first of all, they don't even characterize themselves as that. They characterize themselves as pro-choice. and. I think it's okay to talk about pro-choice. The fact that you ought to have a choice about whether to have a child or not is certainly a key element of the case for abortion rights. But I think you're right that the fact that that's the only thing that they isolate is evidence that there's a kind of, they're being apologetic about it. And they don't want to defend the actual morality of abortion. At best, 
what they will say is, don't judge me for my abortion, which is a kind of moral relativism. And then they'll, of course, judge all the people who uh, judge you for it. Uh, paradox you often see with moral relativism. But so part of it is that there's, there's generally an attitude of moral relativism on the left, which is the de facto defender of abortion rights in this country. But there's also the deeper point that the left has, generally speaking, abandoned uh, any respect or reverence for the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the original American sense of those terms. They're generally opposed to uh, treating an individual's happiness as morally paramount. And they generally want people to sacrifice their happiness for higher causes, whether it's the environment or society or the poor. And so the left is very poorly positioned to be the defender of abortion rights. It doesn't really fit with uh, the rest of their agenda except to the extent that they see it as a woman's issue. And there uh, they try to bring it under the umbrella of uh, feminism and, and other kinds of gender collectivism. But that's a very weak way of defending it. It's a way that it's a, it's a way that then encourages this kind of tribalistic outlook uh, on the topic of abortion, because now it's women who are the tribe defending abortion rights and everybody else who doesn't like women uh, then will uh, will oppose it, uh, or everybody else who doesn't like feminists at least will end up opposing abortion rights. And that's a deadly way uh, to try to defend abortion rights. It, it makes it an unintellectual, unserious issue. It makes it about political posturing. Uh, and I think it's a big part of the reason why uh, abortion rights are being eroded in this country. There is, there is no serious intellectual moral defense of these rights that's, that's coming from any sectors on the left. And of course, the right wouldn't even touch it. So extending that just a bit, I'm interested in why Ayn Rand isn't held up because she is a woman as well that is like in line with their views, but can they just not get over the, the bad taste in their mouth of how pro-individualism she is? Why now and while she was alive, wasn't Ayn Rand more of a you know, prominent figure in this debate as I understand it? Well, so we need to take a step back because uh, we haven't yet talked about Ayn Rand in this conversation. And uh, some people may be watching us who are unfamiliar with her connection to this uh, question. Obviously, this is coming from the Ayn Rand Institute and the moral outlook that I've been uh, relying on in making the arguments both about morality and rights that I've been relying on up until this point has, in fact, been informed by Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. And I'm in agreement with her uh, philosophy. But she was, in fact, a intransigent defender of abortion rights. She was very vocal about it. She wrote a number of articles on the topic. She often uh, made arguments for why you should, have, should or should not vote for one or another political candidate because of their abortion position. Uh, notably, she was increasingly critical of uh, conservative Republicans later in her life through the 70s and the 80s because of their increasing opposition to abortion rights. 
She thought that they weren't real defenders of freedom as they claimed to be uh, because of their positions on abortion rights. And so it's not that she wasn't out there, uh, you know, making her view known about this, but it is the case that um, as she made her arguments clear, it's not exactly clear who the most receptive audience for them would have been. The left didn't like Ayn Rand because she was pro-capitalism and because she was otherwise pro-individual freedom on every other topic. Uh, and the right, even though they sympathized with her position on, on capitalism, because they were generally under the influence of a religious conservative worldview, wouldn't uh, stomach, couldn't stomach what she had to say about abortion. She herself was an atheist and so didn't, didn't have any commonality with them in that respect. Okay, no, that's very helpful uh, to me and to help provide some kind of context around that. Um, so we're gonna now move to the audience Q&A. We have a lot of questions coming in. Before we do that, I do wanna just take a quick poll of the people participating on Zoom. Um, as we were just speaking about, this is run by the Ayn Rand Institute and we're interested to know what people's um, knowledge of Ayn Rand was coming into this uh, session. So I'll leave that open for a about a minute and we can move on to the audience q and I'll remind people on Zoom that there's a Q&A tab as well. If you're watching on Facebook, YouTube or Periscope, you can comment and we'll pull the questions. So the first question is from Vincent on Facebook and he asks, at what point and by what criteria does the fetus become defined as a human being? Once it is human, it has rights. So is birth necessary? Or I suppose like there are other arguments that come along of when life starts. Is it pain? Is it consciousness of some sort? So by what criteria do we determine that? So we touched on some of these issues already, but it's worth saying a few more things about it. So I don't want to be taken as denying the obvious fact that, that, the, that conception is the beginning of the human life cycle. I mean, I guess you could go, you could dispute that by saying, well, maybe it's when the sperm and the eggs are created. Uh, nobody wants to say that though. But something important happens at conception, no question. Uh, and the, the conceptus has human DNA. It doesn't have dog DNA. It doesn't have crocodile DNA. So it's, it's a human embryo and a human fetus. But the, so the question, when does life begin is ambiguous. Uh, what do you mean by when does life begin? Well, it's, it's got metabolism. It's not an inanimate object that's in the womb, but simply whether there is metabolism is not the question that's relevant in deciding whether or not an entity has rights and deciding whether or not killing it is immoral. So there are studies that suggest that by the time the fetus is in the third trimester, it has some of the necessary neurological structures for experiencing pain. Uh, the significance of these studies is not entirely clear for reasons we could say more about. But just for the sake of argument, suppose it's true that late in pregnancy, a fetus can feel pain in a way that even matters to it. I don't see why this 
establishes anything relevant to the question of the morality of abortion. Uh, for one thing, we think that animals can experience pain. We don't think generally, unless we believe in animal rights, we don't think that they have rights. We don't think it's always wrong to kill them. And even if it were the case that it would be wrong to inflict pain, as I think it is the case with animals, well, that's at most then a reason to provide fetal analgesia uh, in the case of abortion. So uh, what's important for the question of whether or not an entity has rights is whether it is an individual living thing, and in this case, <laughs> an individual human being uh, that is on the way to developing into an adult. Uh, individuation is important here. Uh, an infant is physically individuated from, uh, from its mother. Prior to that, it's part of her life and it's only a potential human being. It's not an actual human being. Birth marks the point at which uh, a real individual human being comes into existence. That's again why we celebrate our birthdays and not our conception dates. And it's the point at which the child can begin to acquire rights. All right. Thank you. Hopefully that answers your question, Vincent. We have a question, two questions that are in a very similar vein. Is the right to abortion sufficiently protected in the US? Was Roe v. Wade enough? And then also someone else asked, should it be protected in the constitution instead of well, the so current framework? In part, this is a question about constitutional law that I'm not exactly qualified to answer because to fully answer it, I would need to articulate a general view about what should and shouldn't be in the Constitution. And there are questions here about whether or not rights need to be enumerated specifically in a Bill of Rights uh, versus uh, simply uh, taking it for granted that the Constitution is there to protect individual rights, whatever they are. Um, I generally think that you shouldn't have to enumerate rights in order to recognize that they're there. So, but I will say a few things about Roe v. Wade, since this often comes up and we just had the anniversary of it a few weeks ago. The argument is often given that the Roe v. Wade decision relied on a right to privacy that is not enumerated in the Constitution. And this makes, uh, the decision weak. I actually don't think that's the weakest thing about the decision. Um, and I don't think that what it says about privacy is the substance of the argument that it gives. There are many places in the Roe v. Wade decision that simply draw on the, the, the on liberty rights that are explicitly articulated in the Constitution. So to that extent, I think as long as you think government is about protecting liberty, and as long as you think uh, that women have liberty and that uh, the fetus uh, is not a person who's subject to liberty, which is another thing that Roe v. Wade decision says. It says the Constitution does not define personhood in a way that makes fetuses persons. That's true. As long as you think that, I think the decision's on good grounds. The main problem with the decision is that it ar fairly arbitrarily draws a line at viability. It says that states can pass rights against abortion post so-called viability, which is the time at which the, in the, the child could survive outside of the womb. 
And it's a very ambiguous definition because the, ch the time of viability keeps changing depending upon, uh, depending upon medical technology. And in any case, that argument, the idea that that's when states w should have the right to pass laws implicitly presupposes a that the when the fetus is viable that somehow does give it rights that states would then have the right to protect which is unfounded for the reasons that i've given before the the mere potential to become a human being which is what viability is in effect does not translate into actually being a human being with actual rights who's actually individuated but b it's also problematic because it explicitly declares that the reason viability is important is because the state has an interest in encouraging something like childbirth. That's right there in the Roe v. Wade decision. And I don't see any grounds for saying the state has any such interest. States don't even have interests. Uh, what states have are the proper function of protecting individual rights. And that's where the story ends. Their, their purpose is not to protect any other uh, interests, so-called. And so that's the biggest weakness in Roe v. Wade. It's the reason why Roe v. Wade has been eroded over the years. Uh, it's the reason why there have been more and more tests which allow states to impose more and more restrictions as the time of viability becomes earlier and earlier in pregnancy. And just generally speaking, the even the best legal decision in the world uh, wouldn't be enough to protect abortion rights if there's not a philosophical understanding in the culture of the moral reasons for the importance of those rights, which we don't have. And so uh, for the reasons that we discussed previously. All right, thank you. Hopefully that answers the questions. Um, next, uh, so we're talking about Sort of broadly, there's a question from Reed on Zoom. Under what circumstances might abortion be immoral? So is are there some cases where it is immoral? And this is perhaps uh, related to the question that John, I see, is asking about, uh, does the fact that a fetus was conceived out of recklessness, for instance, unprotected sex, change anything about when it comes to the morality of abortion? And I'll put it this way. It's hard for me to think of cases where it's immoral. I'm sure that there are some cases, but the whole framework that makes people suspect it might be immoral is, is questionable to begin with. So here's, here's like the, if I had to try very hard, here's the case where I would say it's immoral. It's you really want a child, and, but you're afraid of the, of the circumstances of, of giving birth. So you, you lack the courage to actually go through with it. And you, you lack the courage, let's say, even to get a C-section, because why aren't you pursuing that option? So the most obvious case where it's immoral to get an abortion is where you actually want the child, where the mother wants the child. Then you shouldn't have an abortion. You should, you should have the courage uh, to go through with childbirth. But that's not the kind of situation that most people think about when they think, well, this might be immoral. Um, 
one of the kinds of cases that people think about when they think it, it's more obviously immoral is, well, it's really late term. And so the fetus is more developed. And so uh, it, it's, it's at least uh, a lot more disturbing to think about abortion at that stage. But here it's really important that the kinds of reasons that women have for having very late-term abortions, and I don't just mean late-term as it's often legally defined, which means after 20 weeks. I mean like if it's within a few weeks of when you would otherwise give birth. The kinds of reasons women typically have in those cases are the very kinds of reasons when the same people who are opposed to abortion will usually say, oh, we'll make exceptions in those cases, because they're cases when the life of the mother is at risk where it's obviously a moral imperative to have the abortion to save the life of the mother. And also cases where there's fetal anomalies uh, that are discovered late in, uh, late in the process, where it's obvious the, the, the infant is not going to survive even post-birth or where it's going to be crippled physically. And it's going to sentence the parents to a lifelong project of being parents and raising a being that can't thrive on its own. So the reasons people typically have late-term abortions are some of the best reasons that you can have them. Um, but going further to the, the question about uh, uh, recklessness uh, with sex, this is not at all a reason uh, to think of abortion as immoral for a whole host of reasons. First of all, if you're talking about taking responsibility for your actions, what does that actually mean? Well, suppose that I have a job and I have to go to work every day and I have to drive to work. Well, driving to work seems like the right thing to do most of the time. Now, anytime I drive to work, I increase the odds. I increase the chances that I'm gonna get into a car accident. I'm engaging in a risky behavior, driving on freeways, especially in Southern California, very dangerous thing to do compared to staying at home, right? But would you say, well, you're responsible for having engaged in this risky activity, driving to work, and now you've gotten into a car accident, and so you should take responsibility for your choices and simply stay injured and not go to the hospital to get surgery to fix your injuries. No, the responsible thing to do, having made this very understandable mistake, is to correct it and to repair yourself so that you can go back to living uh, a successful life. I think that the reason why people don't think about abortion in the same way is that they have an underlying premise that sex is immoral. And this goes to uh, the earlier question that you had about why there's opposition, uh, why there's so much opposition to abortion. This goes hands in, hand in hand with the, uh, with the religious attitude, because there's generally a religious attitude that regards sex as suspect. Uh, that's because it's so much about enjoying your own life, and it's so much about your own pleasure, that it's morally tainted. And so it's only justifiable if you're married and if you're, if you're intending to procreate and so forth. But in my view, and it was also Ayn Rand's view, uh, sex and sexual pleasure is an important part of the pursuit of happiness. And it's one of the most moral things that you can do if you're doing it with a consenting partner who you have feelings for. And uh, 
yeah, it's usually if you don't want children, you should use protection, obviously. Uh, but if you forgot to do it or if the contraception didn't work, that's analogous then to driving to work and getting in an accident and going to the hospital and getting it fixed. That's what you do when you, you get an abortion. And there's no reason to think of it in any different category aside from just pure prudish anti-sex prejudice. That's really clarifying. I, I quite enjoyed the analogy. I've never thought of it that way. And I think calling attention to the anti-sex uh, mentality is, is very important as well. So I, I appreciate that. Um, the next question we have is from Ken from YouTube, which I guess plays a little bit off of what we're talking about. Does the father have a say? Can the father argue he values the life, that life inside of the woman? Does he have any right, the would-be father or the father? Basically, no. Uh, it's the woman's body. She's the one who has to carry this fetus to term. She's the one who has to give birth. Now, you know, if she loves the father, she, I think she should have a conversation with him about it. And getting his input on whether he's going to be willing to raise the child or not is relevant to the decision that she's going to make. Uh, but I, I don't think that he should have any legal say as to whether or not she gets to have the abortion whatsoever. It, the, the question here is a question between her and her doctor. She needs to be the one to have the decision based on the medical advice that she gets from the doctor. And it can't be subject to any third party or to any government who wants to speak on behalf of that third party. Now, I should say that this is a point that cuts both ways. Because let's say if the woman uh, decides that she wants to have the child and the father doesn't agree with that decision, like he thinks that she should have had an abortion because he thinks it's irresponsible for her to raise the child this time in her life. I do think uh, that this means that you, if you set up the right kind of legal framework, if he declares his intention in advance, this is his position on the birth. I, I do think that this means you can't legally uh, force him to pay any kind of child payment, which is, in, this is, which is different from the way that the system is set up today. But that would be need to declare in advance. Like it can't be that he says he's going to support her and then she has the baby and then he changes his mind and now he doesn't have to pay. No, it, it wouldn't work that way. But otherwise, if we're talking about the decision to have an abortion or not, it's not any part of his, his part. So you mentioned it's not his part. He shouldn't have any legal um, ability to impact her decision. But Sam on Zoom has a sort of follow-up question. Does she have, how does that impact the morality? Does it change it if she knows the father wants it? Does that taint her moral, um, her moral virtue, let's say, in making a decision that is good for her life? Not in most cases. The only case where I can think it would is if... Uh... She, if, if, if they had agreed in advance that they wanted the child and she changes her mind. But if she never wanted it and he, for whatever reason, does, then they disagree. And even if she loves him, which, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to imagine people still retaining a relationship over disagreement on something like this. But even if she loves him, it's still her, it's, it's her choice. And, and uh, if he can't see why this is an unnecessary burden on her, uh, so much the worse for him. It's her life. All right. Thank you. So next, we have a question from Tom on YouTube, which might need you to provide a little bit of context. But he asks, 
why did Ayn Rand only support abortions during the first trimester? It's not the case that she did. Okay. So the, this is a question that sometimes comes up because there is a place in one of her essays where she says the most important political issue is whether or not women have the right to an abortion earlier in pregnancy. And she says, you can have an argument about uh, whether they should later in the term. But she doesn't actually say that she thinks that the other side would make a good argument. And if you look at the context of that uh, quotation, the reason that she's making the point about how you can have an argument about the later uh, stages of pregnancy is because it's in the context of otherwise giving a moral evaluation of people who are opposed to abortion. Earlier in the article, she says that the religious conservatives who are opposed to abortion are anti-life and actually evil. And so when she says, if you can have an argument about later term uh, pregnancies, she's saying, well, maybe the ones who are opposed to it there aren't evil. That doesn't mean she doesn't think uh, that they're mistaken. And in fact, in various other places, I, I, I talk about this in an article I wrote called Ayn Rand's Radical Case for Abortion Rights. If someone would put the link to that in the chat, that would be great. Uh, in other things that she wrote, she makes very clear that she was actually in favor of abortion rights up until birth. And uh, there was a law that was recently passed in New York where uh, basically women are given this right. She was an advocate of that, the earlier proposal for that same law in the 1960s, and she encouraged people to vote for representatives who were gonna vote for that law. And uh, the, all the documentation for this is, is in the article I just mentioned. Great, thank you. So I think we've covered a lot of this, but Henry from Zoom has a question that perhaps we can add a little more to. Would you comment on the view that individual rights begin at the point at which the umbilical cord is cut? Is this a legal issue apart from a moral issue? Is there anything additional you can add in this vein? Sure. First of all, I, I wouldn't say that it has to be the point at which the umbilical cord is cut. I, as a philosopher, I am not going to take a position on which exact point we say that the life of the individual begins and at which point they can begin to acquire rights. What I will say as a philosopher is that it's going to be sometime around uh, sometime around birth. But as a philosopher, I'll also say that there isn't, for reasons I mentioned before, a single instant, because rights don't suddenly magically come into existence, we're the ones who have to make the decision. Now you might ask, Henry might ask, okay, well, when should we make the decision? And the most that I can say is has to be around the time of birth. And I can also say that, the, that this, is, this is a case, this is an issue that often comes up with legal questions of all kind, where you know you need to have some kind of boundary that you're drawing, but there are options. There's a range of options in which it is rational and objective to draw that line. I mean, so the most obvious other example of this would be when you talk about reaching the age of majority. We need to have a point at some point when uh, children transition into adults, when they can start voting and driving, when they acquire the ability to engage in all kinds of contracting, um, we need to have some such age, but should it be at 16, at 17, at 18? That's something the different juris jurisdictions can, I think, legitimately differ about, but it needs to be sometime in that range. And similar, similar issues come up at uh, the end of life. When exactly do you count someone as dead? Is it with, uh, when their heart and lungs stop? Is it when their brain dies, et cetera? 
Um, philosophically, I can only say, well, it's going to be sometime around then, and then you'll need to know more about the situation, uh, medically speaking in this case, to know exactly when to draw the line. And there are legal, wider legal issues that can come into play in making these kinds of calls. There's a question, for instance, about legal objectivity. You not only need a line, but you need a line that's easy to draw. And once you draw it, everyone knows where it is so that they can respect it. And so does that mean that it'll be easier to do it when uh, the, the baby first starts to emerge from the womb or when they cut the cord? That's a good question that you can have a discussion about, and I don't have a ready answer, and I suspect that there will be many, uh, there'll be a range of good answers, uh, depending upon uh, level of civilization, time and history, uh, country, jurisdiction, etc. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to ask, Alexander has a question from YouTube. Uh, doesn't the state of the human fetus overlap with a human with a disability? Would it be immoral to kill a disabled person? And I also want to follow up on something you mentioned around if you know the fetus will have issues, will have disabilities, it, like selective abortions in that regard, is there a unique view there? Yeah, so these are, these are different questions. Uh, okay. But I'll start with the easiest one, which, which is, is it... <laughs> What's, so what's the commonality between a preterm fetus and a, someone with disabilities? I don't quite understand what the person's asking there. Maybe think, what they're thinking is that my argument is that, you, is that the reason you have rights is because you're an individual rational being and uh, where I, I gave as the paradigm example of that, adult human beings who are fully rational and they might say, well, these people, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're disabled in certain respects, then that might not uh, apply to you. Um, well, for, first of all, uh, not just any disability is relevant here because there can be people who are physically disabled who are completely uh, mentally capable. So that's not even an issue. Uh, but if what you mean is mental disabilities, where a person doesn't have the ability to develop into uh, a uh, fully functional uh, uh, intellectual being. Uh, that is, I mean, that's a very real thing. I still think those people have rights. And the main reason is that they are, uh, they've been born and they're individuals and we do need to uh, negotiate boundaries with them. And they, it's not like people with mental disabilities are animals. I mean, they, they do have a rational capacity. It's, it's just not as fully developed. I mean, they're often in the position of uh, children, mentally speaking, but uh, children should have rights too. Now, of course, children are going to grow up into adults and people who are mentally disabled won't. But uh, once they're born and once they have uh, individuation and once they have some kind of rational capacity, they have some kind of rights and it, they're then in the charge of, of their parents to be taken care of for the rest of their life. And so then uh, there is a connection to the issue of what do you do uh, when you're pregnant with uh, someone for genetic reasons, you know, they're going to have these disabilities. I mean, I think that should be a factor in deciding whether you want to do it. Uh, I think you have to know you are signing up for a lifelong period of parenting. That is not what most people want out of parenting. Most part of the value 
of being a parent is raising the child and seeing them grow into a fully functioning adult. That's part of the happiness. And to be sentenced to a life of raising a, a child, in effect, is, is a terrible burden. And I think one that most people shouldn't want to assume. I mean, if you're so enamored of having a child of your own, and this is your only chance to have it, and you find out that it's going to be uh, mentally disabled, I can maybe see a reason for still going through with it, but uh, most cases, I can't. All right. Thank you. So we have time for one last question. Um, would a woman who abuses her fetus by drinking or doing drugs be characterized as immoral? If yes, how do you reconcile that with the right to abortion if this unborn entity doesn't have any rights? This is a tricky question. And you often get uh, uh, versions of the same question uh, that deal with the, the same wider issue when people ask, well, why is it that there are, why is it that there are laws against that can be used to punish criminal offenders who kill the woman and who also kill, let's say, the, ch the, the baby she's pregnant with. Uh, and then they get extra time in jail because they didn't kill just one person, they killed in effect two. And isn't that inconsistent, they'll ask, with uh, thinking that the fetus doesn't have rights, thinking that there should be a right to an abortion. I actually don't think it is inconsistent because here, the woman's choice really, really matters. And that's been the point all along. If the woman wants to have a child, then uh, harming or killing the, the fetus that she is attempting to bring to term is a crime against her. And it's more of a crime against her uh, than if, if you know, they only stole her wallet. So that's, that's the... Uh, the first thing to say. When we then talk about what things the woman herself might do to harm the fetus or the embryo, well, first of all, if she doesn't actually intend to have, the, have a child in the first place, then she should have an abortion, I think. And then any harm that she uh, does to, to the fetus or the embryo is is a moot issue anyway. So to take this question seriously, you would have to assume that both A, she wants to have the child, she intends to bring it to term, but she's doing it irresponsibly in a way that uh, ends up harming the child. Now, I, I actually do think that, um, I don't wanna get into a medical controversy here, but there are probably fewer ways to do this to the child than people sometimes imagine. But without going into that, it is possible, especially if you are taking terrible uh, illicit drugs, and that goes back to your conversation with Ankar last week, it's possible to do that. So if the woman really wants to have the child, but she injures the child in the course of doing drugs, uh, then, well, at the very least, she's the one who's going to be responsible for uh, taking care of the child in its injured state. The, the, the medical bills will be on, be on her. And I, I think that there is at least a question that you can ask about whether she can be brought up on charges of some kind of child abuse, not because the fetus has rights, but because the child who is then born has rights. And this is a different thing than 
uh, saying the fetus doesn't have rights and uh, for, uh, sorry, it's a different thing than saying the fetus has rights and then forbidding abortion on the basis of that. Because if the woman's really intending to bring this child to term and is really going to have the child, then there is an act, there is an actual child, not just a potential child at the end of the line here, who can be affected by her actions in the past. Whereas if she doesn't actually plan on having the child in the first place, then it's totally begging the question to say that it's going to affect an actual child. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question to edit on, a, a tough one for sure. Um, and I think it definitely helped me think through it a bit more. And hopefully it answered the asker's question as well. So I want to thank you, Ben, for joining me and answering this or discussing this topic with me. And thanks everyone who tuned in. Um, we have some suggested readings if you can run through quickly to help people uh, know where to look for more information about this. Yeah, and these are pieces I hope that someone will post links to in the chats on the various social media channels. But the first place I would suggest someone look is to Ayn Rand's own essay of living death, which is, uh, as you can see, reprinted here in uh, her collection, The Voice of Reason. This is, I think, the most prominent place where she comments on abortion rights, uh, discusses her opposition to the Catholic Church's opposition to abortion rights, characterizes their opposition in the wider context of their religious philosophy and their opposition to sex. And so she's not here just commenting on uh, the, the legal issue, but on the moral issue and on the underlying psychological issue. It's a, it's a real tour de force. There's also an audio version of it you can listen to where she gives a speech version of it. Uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, who is one of Rand's, uh, who is Rand's most accomplished student and a philosopher himself, wrote a, a short op-ed called Abortion Rights Are Pro-Life. This is commenting on the issue that you raised, David, on, on why it's such a distortion for the anti-abortion movement to characterize themselves as pro-life. And he, I think, gives a really good condensed summarized argument for abortion rights in this article. And then I've written a number of uh, pieces on this issue myself, the first of which I have here, I've already referenced earlier in our conversation, Ayn Rand's Radical Case for Abortion Rights. This is where I lay out basically everything, all the important things that she ever said about this, including uh, the issue of did she only advocate it earlier in pregnancy? And no, did I give the evidence showing she actually advocated it all the way up to birth. And then uh, the last two pieces, the science without philosophy can't resolve abortion debate. That's where I talk about arguments against abortion rights on the basis of things like fetal pain. Uh, it's where I take the Ayn Rand's conception of individual rights. I show why they only apply paradigmatically. They apply paradigmatically to adult human beings and only by extension uh, to children, but then not at all uh, to, inf to, to fetuses and to embryos, even though they do apply to infants. Uh, and then abortion allows women to protect what's sacred about life. This is kind of digging into the same issue about why it's so ridiculous for anti-abortionists to, to call themselves pro-life and why especially uh, their invocation of the sanctity of life is so inappropriate. Because if there's anything sacred about life, it's something that the living, breathing woman has, uh, which, and it doesn't apply to a clump of cells. Great. Thank you. And yeah, we'll provide links to people so they can check out these suggested readings. And I want to remind people that next week we'll have another, um, one, another session of Philosophy for Living on Earth. And the topic will be, Is Privilege Real? with Gregory Salmieri. So I definitely encourage you to check that out.
And if you have broader questions that you want us to cover for a full hour, you can email us at webinars at einrand.org and be sure to subscribe to the webinars if you're not already and attend on Zoom. And you can also check out on Facebook, Philosophy for Living on Earth. Thanks everyone for tuning in and thank you, Ben. I very much appreciated it. Thanks, David. Bye everyone. Bye.